Across America, BP supports more than 275,000 jobs to keep energy flowing. Jobs like building grid-scale solar energy in Ohio and producing gas with fewer operational emissions in Texas. It's and, not or. See what doing both means for energy nationwide at bp.com slash investing in America. Can you remember a time when you thought someone you disagreed with might actually be right? In the new podcast, You Might Be Right, former Tennessee governors Bill Haslam and Phil Bredesen pose that question to guests like Paul Ryan, Al Gore, and Judy Woodruff. Come for the stories, stay for the substance and expert insights into some of the most challenging issues facing the country, including affordable housing, crime, and education. Listen to You Might Be Right, a new podcast from the Baker School at the University of Tennessee, available wherever you get your podcasts. We've got two all-new Bowery Boys podcasts being prepared for December, but they're only lightly festive in content, so I thought we'd present a full-on holiday podcast spectacular for you, courtesy the gilded gentleman himself, Carl Raymond, and some very special guests. In the first half, Carl is joined by the king of Christmas history himself, tour guide Jeff Dobbins, whose wildly popular tours look at a wide range of holiday traditions, from the early Dutch years of New Amsterdam to the first New York commemorations of Hanukkah in the 19th century. Then, for you Scrooged fans out there, Carl chats with actor John Kevin Jones, who has been performing his annual one-man adaptation of Charles Dickens' A Christmas Carol at New York's Merchant's House Museum, a show now in its 11th season. And by the way, Jeff Dobbins is continuing his Christmas in Old New York tours this year, including a virtual tour for those who don't live in New York or would rather just sit by the tree and take in your holiday history there under the twinkling colored lights. You can find more information on Jeff's tours at BoweryBoysWalks.com. But enough Yuletide log rolling. Pour yourself some eggnog and enjoy these stories of Christmas in Old New York. Happy Holidays! I'm Carl Raymond, the host of the Gilded Gentleman History Podcast, where every two weeks we look into the worlds of America's Gilded Age, France's Belle Epoque, and England's late Victorian and Edwardian eras. From the moment the Macy's Thanksgiving Day Parade ends, I feel like it really is the beginning of the holiday Christmas season here in New York. But as a historical storyteller, I can't help think back to the traditions that brought us to where we are. In this first part of the show, I'm joined by fellow New York City licensed tour guide Jeff Dobbins to take a look at some of the city's holiday traditions and how they changed during the 19th century. Jeff is also a regularly published writer and has written over 150 articles about New York City culture, history, and food for Yahoo Travel, Matador Network, and Nomadic Matt, just to name a few. Jeff, it is wonderful to welcome you back to The Gilded Gentleman. Well, thank you. I'm thrilled to be back with you. I'm so glad you're here. So as a tour guide, 
You do so many tours, and one of your signature tours is your sold-out Christmas in Old New York tour for Bowery Boys Walks. I am so glad that you are here to help celebrate the season on The Gilded Gentleman with our special, and you could take a little break from all those tours. It's a pretty busy season, isn't it? I, it's a very busy season, which is good, you know, coming out of what we've all been through. Absolutely. It really is nice to see people back, don't you think? Yeah, yeah. So, Jeff, there's so much to talk about. So when we talk about the Gilded Age, we, of course, talk a lot about old New York versus the new money, sort of in new New York. So old New York had its origins in the 17th century, of course, with the early Europeans that came here, the original Dutch settlers. And it was really the Dutch traditions that permeated so much of New York society well into the 19th century. Can you talk a little bit about that Dutch influence and how that translated into some Christmas celebrations? Yeah, absolutely. Well, New Amsterdam has been described as a rowdy frontier town. So it's not really a surprise that unlike the Puritans, who settled just a few years earlier north in Massachusetts, who had outlawed Christmas, the Dutch had no qualms about having a good time. They observed Christmas which they call Kirstit. Do you speak Dutch? I don't. A few words. My Dutch really isn't what I it should be. <laughs> Kirstit. So there, actually, there was a 19th century book on the colony that tells us on New Year and Kirstit, the governor's house was ablaze with candles and young men and maidens danced in the entry. Official business was closed for weeks and the burghers and their families spent much of their time in firing guns, Beating drums, dancing, card playing, playing at bowls or nine pins, and of course, drinking beer. But their most popular holiday of the season was Sinterklaas, St. Nicholas Day on December 6th. By the way, St. Nicholas was the patron saint of New Amsterdam, and the very first church in Manhattan was St. Nick's. So he was, you know, really integral to their culture. But on Sinterklaas, the children of New Amsterdam left their shoes near their homes, outside their homes, to be filled with gifts and treats by the generous saint. And if it was a soggy holiday, they might hang their stockings by the fireplace. And this holiday was so popular that it continued through the 18th century. It was just embraced by New Yorkers. And uh, eventually it melded with Christmas. One thing I love is that Sinterklaas is still celebrated in New York up in Rhinebeck. And so if anybody's interested in joining the fun, definitely check their website because they have a big Sinterklaas celebration every year. It's interesting because December 25th, as Christmas as we think of it today, really wasn't celebrated for decades and decades. I mean, you might have gone to church for sure, but it was really 1870 when December 25th as Christmas became an actual holiday, which I was so shocked. That just seems so, so late. Right. Um, it's really interesting that this notion, though, of this feasting with family and friends on December 25th also seemed to come a little bit later in the the century, and New Year's Day was really the big social holiday, right? Yeah, absolutely. Uh, New Year's Day calling was a long tradition. Quoting a lot here, but an article from 1916 said, from old Dutch times to about 1880, New Year's Day in New York was devoted to universal interchange of visits. Every door was thrown wide open. It was a breach of etiquette to omit any acquaintance in these annual calls when old friendships were renewed and family differences were amicably settled. 
There were great feasts spread in many houses, and the tradition of tremendous Dutch eating and drinking were faithfully observed. So some things we never give up in the city. That's a good thing. Right? And by the mid-1800s, these calls were also a chance for young men to meet single young ladies. So you're basically saying it was a mixer. Exactly, right. Yeah. It's interesting, the Merchant's House Museum that um, certainly we'll be talking about later in the show and that I have referred to a lot in our shows, every year they celebrate New Year's Day with an open house because, of course, when the Treadwell family at the Merchant's House uh, was living there, New Year's Day was indeed the big celebration. And and it's funny because you were quoting, and but you read these passages from diaries and writings of the 19th century, and the ladies stayed at home, and they prepared the spread and this wonderful uh, drink called Smoking Bishop, which again, we'll talk about later in the show, but a huge feast of of nibbles and things. And the men went from house to house to house to house, and, and there are some really funny writings where sometimes they had a little too much Smoking Bishop or whatever they had, but it was really quite a party on New Year's Day. Yes. Well, in fact... I understand that that's what led to the demise of New Year's Day calling, because uh, this thing I read said it devolved to groups of young men racing around town under the influence. And hostesses were beset by lightning visits by these boars who would down a glass and race out the door to the next free one. So it was described as a wild and unseemly riot of visits that led to the end of the tradition. And I think that was probably a really good idea. That doesn't sound like it was a good, you know, good thing. It's interesting. Um, one of Edith Wharton's most famous novellas is actually called New Year's Day, and it's set in the 1870s. And there's at the beginning of it, she actually says that uh, by that point, uh, New Year's Day is becoming passe, and it's sort of changing. So, Jeff, do you think, even as New Year's Day was was sort of on the wane, is there anything else about it that you found fascinating? Yeah. Well, people used to gather at Broadway and Wall Street. Some years, it's up to 15,000 people would gather there to hear the bells of Trinity Church chime at midnight. Hence the expression, ringing in the new year. That's where it all started. Oh, I never knew that's where it came from. Absolutely. And it was. And then in 1904, they gathered in the newly named Times Square to see fireworks set off from above the new Times building. Three years later, the city said, uh, could you figure out a better way to celebrate the new year than burning embers raining down on the yeah, people of New York? Yeah, that sounds a little dangerous. Yeah, exactly. Uh-huh, so yeah. they came up with the idea of the ball dropping, and it's dropped at that location since 1907. Wow, I don't know if people realize it's gone back that, that far. Yeah. Yeah. So, Jeff, you and I were talking the other day, and you shared something you'd read that I thought was really fascinating. It was the idea that this family and friends aspect of Christmas in, in old New York actually took hold after the Civil War. I found that really interesting. Can you talk a little bit about that? Yeah, well, this will sound familiar, but with the Industrial Revolution, things, technology, communication, transportation, things are changing fast. People are starting to leave rural areas and move to work in factories and urban centers. And all that upheaval is feeling very confusing to folks. And then, of course, the Civil War literally tore families apart. So... People were ready for this holiday that was centered on you know, community and goodwill and families. There was a real need for it. New York answered the call, of course. You know, In the mid-19th century, it was the center of publishing, published most of the na- nation's publications. And so newspapers and magazines 
They started to feature Christmas stories and recipes and holiday decorations and gifts. There were illustrations of heartwarming family gatherings. You know, it was really the beginning of the media depicting these ideal Christmases that one can, you know, almost never live up to. And also in the 1870s, Christmas cards began to become very popular and sold on the streets in New York. The city was also, of course, the center of commerce and New York's stores, retail emporiums, uh, realized that Christmas was a lucrative opportunity. And the quickest way, by the way, to someone's wallet was through their kids. So they started to promote the holiday as a family occasion centered around children and, of course, gift giving. And along with enticing advertisements in publications, they would create elaborate merchandise displays to lure shoppers. I think that's a really interesting point, too, because um, I did a show earlier in the spring with with Emma on Ladies Mile and the rise of retail in the city. And it was really it took that to kick in for this this beginnings of I will call it commercialism, right to really, really, really take hold. One of the great retailers, of course, uh, and you and I talked about this was R.H. Macy. And I think that's sort of a fascinating story, too, because Macy's in a lot of ways, certainly even today, has been associated with the Christmas season, with with the holidays. Can you talk a little bit about that? Because you told me about a really interesting woman that worked with Macy's. Ah, yes. Her name was Margaret Gretchen LaForge. And in 1866, Mr. Macy, R.H. Macy, made her the first female retail executive. and. Macy's pioneered a number of um, holiday retail traditions, including expanded store hours. In 1867, they stayed open until midnight, which was, you know, unheard of on Christmas Eve. Of elaborate window displays, there's this wonderful etching of uh, when Macy's was done on 14th Street, and they have a whole wall of, of glass, you know, in the window. And there was a conveyor belt with a sleigh on it, so it would make a, a lap around in the window, you know. So you often hear that Lord and Taylor was the first animated windows, but, you know, that sleigh was making a lap in the Gilded Age down on 14th Street. And of course... The very first indoor Santa Claus at Macy's. Oh, and we're going to come back and talk about that. I, I'm not going to let that go. So where did Santa Claus come from? Carl and Jeff will be very naughty and let you know after the break. Across America, BP supports more than 275,000 jobs to keep energy flowing. Jobs like building grid-scale solar energy in Ohio and producing gas with fewer operational emissions in Texas. It's and, not or. See what doing both means for energy nationwide at bp.com slash investing in America. Can you remember a time when you thought someone you disagreed with might actually be right? In the new podcast, You Might Be Right, former Tennessee governors Bill Haslam and Phil Bredesen pose that question to guests like Paul Ryan, Al Gore, and Judy Woodruff. Come for the stories, stay for the substance and expert insights into some of the most challenging issues facing the country, including affordable housing, crime, and education. Listen to You Might Be Right, a new podcast from the Baker School at the University of Tennessee, available wherever you get your podcasts. Pulling up to Mickey D's just for drinks? Oh yeah, that's me. Nothing extra, just perfection and a straw. Coming in hot 
for the coldest cups on the block. Because there are drinks. Then there are drinks from McDonald's. Mix things up with any size lemonade or sweet tea for $1.49. Perfect with our classic fries. Price and participation may vary. Cannot be combined with any other offer. Ba-da-ba-ba-ba. Jeff, you and I also were talking, you had uh, said at one point, I thought this was interesting, that it can be said and has been written that New Yorkers contributed certainly to the image of the modern Santa Claus. What did, how did that come about? Yeah, I, I mean, I think it's fair to say that America's Santa Claus is a native New Yorker because so many talented New Yorkers created him. One of the first, Washington Irving, the great Washington Irving, in his history of New York, you know, this sort of mockumentary about New Amsterdam, he Americanized Sinterklaas into Santa Claus. And he also wrote about St. Nick going over the rooftops, distributing gifts to children on, uh, I think it was Christmas Eve, he said it. But we definitely know 1823, Clement Clark Moore wrote the poem, A Visit from St. Nicholas, better known to most as The Night Before Christmas, a gift to his own children. And in that poem, he established a lot of now familiar details about Santa, including his physical appearance, the night of his visit, his mode of transportation, the number and names of his reindeer, and his chimney diving, all (laughs) in that poem. And then one more, Thomas Nast, if uh, listeners aren't familiar with the prolific Mr. Nast, he created Uncle Sam and the cartoons that took down Boss Tweed and his criminal ring. But in 1863, he created an illustration of Santa Claus that appeared in Harper's Weekly. And it was so popular. You know, it's the familiar Santa we know in the red fur with the big belly and the beard. So popular that he went on for decades to create illustrations of Santa. He also created Santa's home the North Pole. That was a Thomas Nast creation? Yes. <gasps> now we know. That's a surprise, right? You had also found a really fascinating description of what the holiday season was like here in New York uh, in the 1880s. Did you happen to bring that along with you today to share with people? I just happened to be <laughs> have that right here. Now, so this little bit is from James McCabe's New York by Sunlight and Gaslight, 1882. So he's describing the Christmas season of 1882. So, McCabe marvels at the hardiness with which New York keeps Christmas. And for weeks, the entire city is in gala attire. As the festival draws nearer, the bustle and excitement increase throughout the city. And when Christmas Eve is reached, New York is fairly crazed with enthusiasm. The streets and stores are now packed to their utmost capacity. The money-spending time of the year and those who are out mean business. Broadway from Bleecker Street to 34th, 6th, 8th, and 3rd Avenues, almost along the entire length, 23rd, 14th, and Grand Street, and the Bowery are all driving a thriving trade. The displays on the stores are something wonderful. The streets are filled with booths and stands at which busy trade is going on. Men and women jostle each other on the sidewalk, and it's difficult in some places to force one's way through the throng. Huge piles of Christmas trees stand on the corners. The clerks in the stores are as busy as bees, and extra help has to be engaged. All day, the streets are filled with men and women, literally loaded down with parcels. 
Lights gleam from every house in the great city. Could you enter, you would find in each and all nearly the same scene going on. The elder members of the family dressing the Christmas tree and loading it with toys and trinkets, decorating the rooms with wreaths and festoons of green. All theaters give special performances, termed matinees, a new term for filks, in the afternoon. The houses are thronged. At night, balls, festivals, and entertainments of all kind close the day. Well, it sounds like the holiday season in New York now, don't you think? That's why I love this, because I was like, that's what I experience every year, especially the thronging. Well, I noticed as, you know, as a tour guide who who does tours through Midtown Manhattan at the holiday season right now, it's those throngs of people you're pretty familiar with. Yes. <laughs> yes. Sometimes on the tour, for instance, we'll get to uh, Bryant Park and I'll look at that sea of people and think, oh my God, how are we going to get to the other side of this? One of the things as you were reading that that really struck me was as the 19th century proceeded, of course, we had the advent of electricity. And that changed, well, it changed the face of all New York for sure and America, but really Christmas because we had Christmas lights now, right? Yeah, absolutely. It was, um, oh gosh, the name, I think it, his name escapes me, but he was Thomas Edison's vice president. And in the 1880s, he came up with stringing electric lights on a Christmas tree and for a very brief period. It was in vogue with the wealthy because, well, who else could afford to electrify their homes and have that? So for this very brief period, folks were enjoying those Christmas lights. You know, it's really fascinating because that thing I just read you is 1882. And as you said, it didn't even become a national holiday until 1870. So Christmas was really embraced with gusto very quickly. It was those stores, right? Yeah. <laughs> now, over the years, one of the most, I think, well-known sounds of the Christmas season is that of the Salvation Army bell ringers looking for uh, donations on corners to really help the less fortunate during the holiday season. And you were sharing with me the other day a little bit about the origins with them. Can you talk about that? Yeah. Well, the Salvation Army, at least the what we know today with the the bells and the kettles and the collecting of money, that began in 1891 at the Oakland Ferry Landing to help feed the poor Christmas. But it spread nationwide very quickly. And by 1901, donations from New York City funded a sit-down dinner at Madison Square Garden. So they filled Madison Square Garden with needy folks for a Christmas dinner. And I saw these wonderful pictures taken. There used to be sort of stations all over the city where one could go and pick up the fixings for a Christmas dinner. You would take it home in a basket. And there's these wonderful pictures of these ladies going home through uh, the Lower East Side just with these teeming baskets. And again, no questions asked. Just, you know, here's what everyone deserves to have a wonderful Christmas feast. And everyone got one. There would be huge lines outside these places. So, Jeff, can you talk a little bit about other celebrations in New York? What about Hanukkah? How was Hanukkah celebrated? Well, uh, you probably know this, that Throughout history, and still throughout a lot of the world, Hanukkah is considered a pretty minor holiday in the Jewish calendar. But in the mid-19th century, there were a couple of rabbis with the Reform Movement in Cincinnati, and they came upon the idea of a festival of lights for children. You know, as a way to keep children interested in the synagogue, these Jewish children were often awash in Christmas, sometimes compelled to take part in Christmas activities. So, this was an alternative to that, and to keep people connected to their faith, right? And for a lot of the immigrants, the Jewish immigrants, it was a way to celebrate their religion, which wasn't always possible in the countries from which they'd come. So, now you often hear that it didn't really develop 
until the 20th century. But I found this wonderful etching from the Brooklyn Academy of Music of this massive Hanukkah celebration. So I wonder if that a lot of the German Jews who were doing so well here in New York, maybe they wanted to be a little bit under the radar with their celebration. But so it's been a way, of course, family gift giving, but to celebrate one's faith that continues to this day, which is why it's so embraced. Absolutely. And those Astors and Vanderbilts up on Fifth Avenue, we can just certainly, I think, safely surmise that their Christmases were just as opulent and full of gold and guilt and, you know, as as their average dinner parties, right? I right. So. <laughs> um, well, we know that, you know, uh, December was really the height of the season, you know, galas and, and dinners at Delmonico's and Sherry's and uh, what better time to flaunt one's wealth than during the holiday season. And ball season, which of course yes. was a, an, another place for young men to meet young ladies and, you know, proceed to matrimony or not. So much of the story of 19th century New York really is the story of, of immigration, beginning certainly with the Irish, moving on to the Germans and the Italians and the Eastern Europeans at the end of the century. Can you talk a little bit about how that affected the holiday traditions of New York, made them richer, really? Yeah, well... I talked about the sort of social upheaval, and one of the things, one of the changes that was making people so unsettled were all these people pouring into New York from all over the world. No room, so the city's just teeming. Immigrants are living and working right on top of each other, but they all brought their traditions for the holidays. So the Italians brought the nativity scenes, the Irish, the Christmas cake, the fruit cake, that's my people, you're welcome, and the Germans the Christmas tree. So that took root, bad pun intended, right here in New York. The Bowery Boys actually covered this 1851. A, a farmer and his two sons cut down about, about two dozen trees, schlepped them over to Washington Market, sold out that first day. Other farmers took note, and that was the birth of the Christmas tree lot right here in New York City. Jeff, I have to ask you, I said to everyone we were going to come back to Macy's. You have a I think really fascinating connection to New York City Christmas celebrations. When uh, when you and I were having coffee the other day, you actually shared with me that you were actually one of the famous elves at Santa Land at Macy's, an actor's dream, right? Can you talk about that? I don't know about an actor's dream. Um, <laughs> yes, like so many elves, I was a teenager. I got the job. I loved it, though. I absolutely loved it. I was promoted quickly to super elf. Thank you very much. And then eventually I was in charge of the Santas. And if you've got young ones, you might want them to leave the room. I actually filled in in the red suit. Spoiler <laughs> alert. Exactly. I was only about 22, but everybody was sick and... uh it was fast. I mean, as you can imagine, fast-paced, crazy, working with young actors from all over the country. But I loved it. And I was there for 10 years on and off. If any of you have read the Santa Land Diaries or seen a performance or heard it, that's like autobiography to me. I wasn't behaving badly, but many of the elves <laughs> around me were. Oh, no. Well, we can't have that. No. I just love this story because what a fascinating vantage point to observe holidays here in New York. In addition to your own very special role as as an elf, Jeff, I really can't think of anyone more Christmassy in New York than you. <laughs> what an experience. I am well stewed in, yes, in the holiday punch. And thank you so much for joining me today. Can I give you a little more eggnog over there? Oh, Can please. We just talk <laughs> 
<laughs> and listeners, if you find yourself in New York in the next couple of weeks, there's not much time left, don't miss Jeff's live Christmas in Old New York tour. And if you can't actually be here, you can enjoy a virtual version, which Jeff will be giving very soon. So go to BoweryBoysWalks.com for all the info on Jeff's live and virtual tours. Thank you, Jeff, so much for being oh, here. Thank you, and happy holidays. Happy holidays. Jeff also reminded me that just to get in the mood for the second part of our show when we come back after the break, it'll be a very special look at A Christmas Carol and Mr. Dickens himself. To get in the mood for that, you can actually pay a visit to the Morgan Library and Museum here in New York and take a look at Dickens' original manuscript of A Christmas Carol. Have you actually seen it, Jeff? I have. <gasps> Well, I invite listeners to go and do that. It's really quite a treat. And with that, I'm going to take a short break, and I'll be right back to continue the festivities on The Gilded Gentleman's first Christmas special. BP added more than $70 billion to the U.S. economy in 2022. Investments like acquiring America's largest biogas producer, Arkea Energy, and starting up new infrastructure in the Gulf of Mexico. It's and, not or. See what doing both means for energy nationwide at bp.com slash investing in America. Welding instructor Alex DeClaire knows VR training platforms like ForgeFX help students master their skills. There's a big learning curve with welding. Virtual reality simulates that exact muscle memory that they need. Learn more at meta.com slash metaverse impact. Pulling up to Mickey D's just for drinks? Oh yeah, that's me. Nothing extra, just perfection and a straw. Coming in hot for the coldest cups on the block. Because there are drinks. Then there are drinks from McDonald's. Mix things up with any size lemonade or sweet tea for $1.49. Perfect with our classic fries. Price and participation may vary. Cannot be combined with any other offer. Ba-da-ba-ba-ba. And we're back. I'm Carl Raymond, the host of the Gilded Gentleman History Podcast. And for this special Christmas edition of the show, we have a truly special guest or maybe two. I am joined by actor John Kevin Jones, who, in the guise of Mr. Charles Dickens himself, is currently performing a one-man adaptation of A Christmas Carol in the absolute most perfect setting to experience this story, the 1832 Parlors of the Merchant's House Museum here in New York. Kevin's regularly sold-out performances of A Christmas Carol have become a classic New York holiday tradition, and it's astonishing to realize that it's now in its 10th anniversary season. Kevin, or Mr. Dickens, is with me right here to talk about A Christmas Carol, the background of the story, its extraordinary influence over the past 150-plus years, and how he developed the performing version that he presents today. John Kevin Jones is a member of Actors' Equity Association's Screen Actors Guild and the Dramatists Guild of America. New York audiences will have seen him on stage at Lincoln Center as well as at the Theater for the New City. Regional theater audiences will have seen his work in productions of Othello, The Rivals, 
All My Sons, and Angels in America, to name just a few. Kevin and I have become friends over the years in his residency at the Merchant's House Museum, and I couldn't be more honored to welcome Kevin to the Gilded Gentleman. Gosh, Kevin, I am so glad you're here. I'm so glad to be here, Carl. What a treat for the holiday season, right? It is. It is. It always is. There's so much to talk about here, but what I really want to give audiences is some background, as I always try to do, and some new eyes with which to see historical characters or places or or moments. And I should say at this point, too, that even if you, my listeners, cannot come to New York to see Kevin perform live, the performance is available in a recorded version that listeners can download, and we'll give some details on that at the end. So, Kevin, let's just jump right in here. So, A Christmas Carol. Dickens wrote A Christmas Carol in 1843. What made Dickens write this particular story at that particular time? Well, I think in order to see why he wrote this story, it's important to know where he was in his writing career. He had of course, written many successful novels up at the, up until this point. But in 1842, he made his trip to America. It was the first trip that he made to America, and he didn't like it very much. And he wrote some things about us that he was, you know, uh, that he didn't like us very much, didn't, that was questioning about us. And so he actually wrote Martin Chuzzlewit as a uh, reaction to his time in America, but it wasn't selling very well. And so that put him in a pinch, and he needed to make some money. And so he created this piece, yes, in order to raise some funds for himself. But I think that that may have actually been sort of a secondary thought, one that may have propelled him to move on it more quickly. But I do think that he also, he was a a social democrat. He wanted to see things moving forward. He wanted things, uh, he wanted laws that affected children and, uh, and work to reflect what was going on in the streets, the horror show that Victorian England and London in particular had become for people who were not able to pay the rent or have a job or whatever. There's no social safety net whatsoever. So I think that he did have that first. And of course, his own experience working in a blacking factory and his parents putting him there. And he wasn't there for very long, but it did, it did affect him very strongly. And so I think that that's already in his mind. This idea that, that he wants to write something that has resonance that will move people. Yes. But then there is, as with all art, there is the point at which one needs to make some money. And so he did put together this book, A Christmas Carol, with fantastic illustrations by John Leach, which were not inexpensive, and put it into a beautiful red-bound book, and it sold out, and he only made $137, or pounds, 137 pounds. So it wasn't the financial success that he wanted it to be, uh, partly because people saw how successful it was, and they copied it and sold it for, you know, less than a quarter the price of what he was selling it for and didn't have to include the uh, royalties for any of the other stuff. He had, he did take all of that to court and tried to get people to stop using it, but there were no copyright laws that would have stepped in and kept people from doing that kind of thing. 
It really strikes me what you just said a couple of minutes ago about the notion of social injustice, because on on one level, people can read this and think of this, what a lovely, charming Christmas story, but there are so many, so many levels that are deeper than that. I had read at one point that, that Dickens actually started his career as a court reporter, and so he would hear these cases that would be tried. And of course, as you mentioned, London at the time, there was a tremendous inequity between the haves and have-nots, which we see in Christmas Carol. There's that scene towards the beginning where you see, I believe it's the the Lord Mayor getting ready for the Christmas feast, and then you have the poor little tailor in his little garret window. Mm-hmm. Dickens really takes us into different levels of society. Do you agree with that? Oh, absolutely. I think that's his, I mean, he wants to play society, uh, the different levels of society off of each other and show the good and bad and the ugly in all of it. I mean, he wants to show the inequities, but he also wants to show the truth behind these characters, behind these people, uh, well, and the truth in the world that he builds. Let's say that. You had alluded to this a couple of minutes ago, is Dickens' own experience that he ended up working as a, I think it was a 12 or 13-year-old, right, in a yeah. shoe-blacking factory? Yeah. But it was because his father had been sent to debtor's prison. Right. His mother, and I think the rest mm-hmm. of the family, moved in, and then they sent him off to work, right? Yes. I, how traumatic, really, right? Absolutely. And for someone who is, you know, obviously so bright, you know, and to put it into a larger context, think of how many children were sent to factories or other sort of uh, jobs that really are designed to do nothing more than suck the life out of an individual and in order to save their families and didn't have the wherewithal or the the talent that Dickens had to pull himself out of it. They didn't, they didn't retire in a lovely home and you know, do all the, no, they, they continued to work until they were past work and then nothing. I find it fascinating that in addition to writing this story, Dickens was really trying to make social commentary here. This just wasn't a, let's write a nice holiday story, right? Well, absolutely. I mean, and you know, and I think that he, he was, well, he was very socially conscious. I mean, he would never, he wouldn't meet the queen. He wouldn't meet anybody who represented that kind of authority over people. That was not who he was, and that was not how he wanted himself represented. So he refused these personal audiences with the Queen. One of the things about Christmas Carol that I think people also forget is this is a ghost story. Oh, so in a tradition of midwinter tale. Right. Yeah, so absolutely. can you talk a little bit about, as much as you choose to share, about the Victorians and ghost stories oh, and what you just said they is were ghosts creepy. in winter. Yes, they were creepy, these people. They, they Ghosts and spirits and their belief in these things. And it was, yeah, uh, it was actually the Victorians uh, and their heightened belief in all of these spiritual paranormal things are what, you know, brought against the reaction like from people like Harry Houdini, who was out trying to completely throw all the make sure that all of the bells and whistles were seen and exposed. But they were in that. And then, of course, they had their own creepiness, you know, taking pictures with dead people and all that kind of thing. So the ghost story fits right in. And it was a tradition in English history that, you know, that midwinter you tell these tales of, you know, things coming in and everything was dark. It's the it's the closing of a year before the light that comes out on the other side. But they want to experience that closing and that darkness. And so that's what the Midwinter's Tales were about, was experiencing the end of this year, the death of this time, the death of this light before another one is born. 
So that was very intentional on his part. Too. Oh, absolutely. Yeah. I think he, I think he exploited the idea of, uh, of the Midwinter's Tale in order to get people more interested in what it was that he was writing about. But also I think it provides this ghost story and his structure of it provides a way for us to, or for him, to show man in three different places in time, in the present, the past, and the future. And I think for him, that's also very important. I think it's one of the, one of the highlights of the show is that a character is able to see a past, a present, and a future of himself at the same time, as if he's asking us to stop time in that moment. But yeah, I think that that was definitely playing into the Victorian's idea of what you would expect at Christmas time up until this point. Uh, things well, are changing for Christmas at this absolutely, point. And I want to ask you about that. So a Christmas Carol seems to have been a success right out of the gate, right from publication. So it certainly seemed to have served to, in a way, redefine the celebration of, of Christmas. So how, how what we see in A Christmas Carol, how is that different from the way the holiday had been celebrated up to that point? Well, I mean, I think the way that they were, there was a lot of thinking going on about Christmas at this time. You know, Prince Albert had brought the Christmas tree into the royal family's home. There was a lot of thinking about Christmas. And so that was moving along. And then the Chris a Christmas carol comes along and it sort of bolsters all that up even higher in the public, public view. And part of that is because it translates so well to other forms of art, to action, to actors, to playing it out, to storytellers, to putting on plays, which they did. And so it all translates to that very well. And so the story was really like wildfire caught on with people. And so, yes, it did bolster the way that we look at Christmas or did change the way we look at Christmas. But there was a lot of thinking coming in behind that already. But certainly, I think most of all, the imprints that Dickens leaves on Christmas for us beyond the pudding and the holly and all of the things that we like to look at is the feeling that this is a time of generosity of spirit, of compassion and kindness for our fellow man. And again, that's getting back to what we were talking about with social justice. This is where he lives. And I think he lives here in all of his work, at least all of the work that I've read of, of his. And I, I'm not going to tell you that I've read everything of Dickens, but I will say what I do read, he, he is always showing you what is happening not only to the underdog in any situation, but what's happening to the person who's causing that pain and how awful that person's life might be and, and giving us a chance to look inside that person's life and to actually realize that oh, it's us. Well, that's what the great dichotomy is between Scrooge and the Cratchits, right? Because, yeah. One of the other very specific things that changed because of the influence of, uh, of Christmas Carol was the food at Christmas. And I've done talks and lectures yes. about this sort of thing. And one of the things I love is the increase in turkey sales because of, you know, there was this, the goose was pretty traditional up to this point. But then, of course, when when Scrooge, you know, buys the enormous turkey for the Cratch, it's apparently turkey sales soared. Well, I, apparently, I think you would find that some scholars in England would accredit the turkey dinner at Christmas time to A Christmas Carol because prior to that time, it had been goose. And so up until then, it was goose, and then all of a sudden it was turkey. It was this ridiculous-sized turkey, and everybody knew about the turkey. That's, of course, the big you know, influx point of the story when the turkey is, is sold, is going to go off to Tiny Tim's family, or to Bob Cratchit's family. It's bigger than Tiny Tim. That's the big 
thing. So everybody knew about that. So they wanted the turkey. And I think so there are some, I have heard some, some scholars talk about how, yes, maybe the sales of turkey does have something to do with One Charles detail I, I found that I really was fascinated with, this is a food history, culinary history sidebar, but so you have the Cratchits and they had a goose. Now that would, how would they have ever been able to afford the goose? Well, there were these goose clubs that you could sort of be part of. And throughout the year, you would save money and you would contribute to this fund, essentially. And then shortly before the holiday, you got to cash in your money and go pick your goose. And so it was sort of like the old Christmas clubs back in in the day. And Mm -hmm. I just love that little detail. So now let's turn a little bit. We've given some background to the show, but now I want to talk about your show and your adaptation. So when you began to take the story and think about it as as a one-man show and with Summoner's Theater Ensemble. How did you start and what were the challenges of doing that? Well, when we first started putting the show together, I it was a terrible year and uh, Christmas Carol was something that came out of that. I had been working on a six-man version that I wanted to work on and build and maybe travel with uh, with some with a company. But after that terrible year, I was sort of isolated and I started working on it as a one man show because I, in working on the six man script, what I discovered was that there was something in the story that was really speaking to me personally. And I I think, you know, certainly I'm not the first person to see myself in Scrooge and to start to realize that some of the things that the story is trying to convey are actually things it's trying to convey to me, to my heart, to my life. And so I started moving with it in that way. We put it into a one-hour format, and I played it at um, friends' houses, matchbox apartments. This is 2011. I think it was 2011. And the next year was 2012. We went to... um uh, we put it up at uh, off Broadway at the Theater Row in the studio for just about four or five nights, and we finally did get a hold of the Merchant's House, though, and they did uh, they did ask us to come by and show it to them in February, and they hired us before we walked out of the house, and that was our first year, and I I'm ten so years glad. ago ten years ago and uh, 2013 2013 yeah ten seasons the. New York Daily News, you've had wonderful reviews from this, and the New York Daily News has said that you, and I quote, summon the classic characters seamlessly, which is true because I've seen Kevin perform this. So, Kevin, who are your favorite characters to portray? You have probably hundreds of them, right, in the, in this show. I mean, are there any, and are there any special minor characters that audiences should particularly pay attention to? Well, I, I do, there are characters that I love, and I have to shout out to Joe Domenowitz, who has such a way with words at the, at the New York Daily news when he wrote that review <laughs> thank you joe um he's a nice guy the yeah i think my favorite character to play is the hardest character that i have to play but the reason it's my favorite is because of the way the audience reacts to it and it was not expected by me it's the uh, it's marley whenever i used to do christmas carol in regional theater or go see it you know in regional theater you get to the marley section and we all know the story it's very you know the myth is very ingrained in us so when you're sitting there watching it you get to that scene it's like okay we know we know we know we know what happens here let's get to the next scene and what i guess i was trying to do in that scene was to make it so that my audience didn't feel like okay we know this let's get on to the fun bits to make him the fun bit 
And so that's what we started to do. We started manipulating his voice. We started using um, inward breath to really make sort of um, an atmospheric situation Ooh, for the character scary. i know he's very <laughs> and and, um, and so he has this uh his because it says right at the very top that he's there's a a great breath that, you know and then it all kind of comes out so it i wanted it to have that really frightening and uh scary feeling and that he was imparting information to us that we don't know this that there are things that he's saying here that we don't need to pass by and when he talks about you know how every man has to walk among other men uh, and see the world and be among people. And if you don't, then when you die, that's what you're going to do. And you're going to see people who are in pain. You're going to see people who can't help themselves. And you could have when you were there, but you cannot do anything about it now. And so you just gasp away your days. And so... That character is very impressive to me because it does have a lot of the theme of the story for me. And there's a lot of what I feel like is uh, not just information I want people to pass. Over. I have one friend who comes every year and he says when I get to the uh, Marley that it just it's overwhelming for him. That the pain that he is in, that the struggle that he's having is just overwhelming for him. You know, one of the things that I have to say that to me is one of the most extraordinary things about attending a performance live and seeing you do this as opposed to just sitting at home all cozy and reading it is you're, you're aware of the words and you're aware of things that Dickens is saying and that these characters are saying because you're, of course, acting them and performing them. These characters are live in you. And that's something that you just don't get in the same way if you're sitting at home reading it. And that's what makes it an extraordinary experience, right? I, I, I think so. And I, I think that my attention to grammar and again, another shout out to, to Miss Houston at Summit Junior High School in New Jersey. <laughs> my grammar, <laughs> my grammar, I, I owe my grammar to this woman, I tell you. And I think that my understanding of the English language and my ability to speak it, to make sense of it, comes from that understanding of what it is. And I, and I, what I try to bring to telling this story using just my voice is to really paint these pictures for people. And, and I am gratified that I have so many audience members who come year after year and who tell me that they see the picture in new ways every year so that I feel like I'm growing too and that I'm that the story is growing inside of me and that I'm able to share that with those people in the audience that come to see me every year and the new ones that come too. Uh, it's very exciting and maybe they'll come again. <laughs> Speaking of evolving the production, one of the things, uh, and I don't remember it was in the second or third year, I, I don't recall, you started to perform the show in the character of Mr. Dickens, in the character of Charles Dickens. So can you talk a little bit about the addition of that and of Dickens himself performing mm -hmm. A Christmas Carol on his various tours, which he did? Yep. Uh, well, you know, when I first started, I, we, we hadn't had the Merchant's House in mind when I first put it together. So we wanted to make this storyteller a kind of everyman. And I was younger then. I looked so good in a tuxedo that that's what we decided on. And we put me in that. But anyway, uh, yeah, at the Merchant's House, Pie Gardner, uh, she mentioned, she suggested that we might put me into a more Victorian look, make me into Charles Dickens, and that that would 
create more of the atmosphere that we were looking for in being there. And I went to my artistic director and she was very, no, I don't know. I'm not sure. And I said, oh, I really think it, we should, we don't lose anything by trying it. And I think that it would be really a lot of fun. And also there is a sort of place for Charles Dickens in 1832, 1842 to be in that space. I mean, there is a, in the, in the imagination at any rate, there is a space for him to be in that space. Uh, he only performed a few blocks north of there at Cooper Union. And then, so it's very possible at that time. But, and as Aristotle said, it's not so important what is, it's what could be. So what could be? He could be there. He could have walked by outside. Absolutely. On the, right? Or he could have just, you know what? It could have been one of those unrecorded, you know, stop-offs that he just had to make in the Bond district as he was passing by. But, I, I you know, it, the idea that it could be was all that it really needs to be because it really, that fills the space. It fills the idea. It brings people back 150 years. Yes, it does. But at the same time, I think they leave with a heightened sense of the present. You know, I, I don't. I don't think that when you come back and you're transported back, that it's just, oh, we had a glorious trip. We went back to the back and then we came back here and now we're just who we were. No, I don't know. I think um, I think there's some change that happens and there's more of a feeling for the present. <laughs> You've been performing the show in the 1832 parlors of the Merchant's House Museum for lo these 10 years now. And I just did a recent show on the Merchant's House. We are, we at the Gilded Gentlemen are great fans of the story that house tells. And you've been performing to sold out houses there. Can you talk about what is particularly special about performing the show there in that space around these objects from the 1830s, 1840s, 1850s that are still there. What is that environment like and what does that add to a performance and to you as a performer? Well, certainly it's a set that we could not afford to build. <laughs> so that is incredible. But the other aspect of that is that the audience comes in and they're already taken with the space. You know, it's it's that engrossing. So then that's a you know, you feel a little bit like your introduction is made when people come in and see that room. But also performing in that room, I don't know. It's a, there's a very warm feeling there. I'm not one to say that I believe in haints and spirits, but I feel a very warm sense in that room. And all of those objects that are around us and the history that the house has and that it's been there for so long and that we're still celebrating these rituals and these holidays in these spaces. And it's, that's a little, that's a little mind blowing sometimes when you're sitting there and you, you realize that we're sitting in a room that was built 180 some odd years ago. Wow. With the original furniture. With the original furniture. There. And, and we're listening to stories from that time. I think the other thing too about it is just the, the parallels that you draw between the Victorian time and our own time. But yeah, there is a, it, there is a feeling of carrying on those traditions there, a feeling of moving forward with the past. And that's really exciting. Now, my listeners, we hope that you will be in New York this month, this holiday season, to be able to come to the Merchant's House and see it live. I encourage you to go to merchantshouse.org for all the ticket information for the performances and times and tickets. But Kevin, as I said at the top of the show, 
there may be some people that won't be able to come to New York, but they'll still have an opportunity to see you perform this. Can you talk a little bit about that? And how do people find out about that? Well, we did. We did a filmed production during the pandemic, during 2020. And we were very fortunate. We had a really terrific film crew and the offer came to be able to give it to our audiences via uh, the web. And so we're going to be offering that again this year. You only need to go to themerchantshouse.org, to the Christmas Carol page, and there will be all the information that you need to uh, secure tickets so that you can watch it in the comfort of your own home. So, Kevin, listeners can have a little mulled wine or smoking bishop, which is a a drink that is mentioned at the end of Christmas Carol. Can you talk a little bit about what smoking bishop is or was? It is. Smoking bishop is mulled wine. Uh, a little warm, spiced wine for the holidays makes the house smell good, as we have said, and it will make the show that much more enjoyable. So, Kevin, even though I am speaking to Mr. Dickens, I still can call you Kevin, right? Absolutely. Is that okay? Absolutely. So, Kevin, thank you so much for joining me on The Gilded Gentleman on this very special Gilded Gentleman Christmas uh, special. And my listeners, now you know a little bit about the traditions of Christmas in old New York, and now a bit more about the world of Charles Dickens and his wonderful tale. Kevin, thank you so much for joining me. Oh, well, thank you for having me. This has been really marvelous. It it feels very festive, doesn't it? Absolutely. <laughs> and I think there's a glass of smoking bishop waiting for us right Perfect. out that door. I think that sounds great. And for all of us at the Gilded Gentleman, we wish you a wonderful holiday season and I'll be back for another look into the Gilded Age, the Belle Epoque and late Victorian and Edwardian England and I promise you the next episode will be equally as festive The Gilded Gentleman is produced by Bowery Boys Media and edited by Kieran Gannon I invite listeners to become a patron of the show. Visit patreon.com slash the Gilded Gentleman. Your support helps me in a very real way to manage the costs of research, writing, and production, including studio costs that all go into creating the show. I couldn't do it without you. Thank you so much. And I'll see you soon. After all, what's life without a little glint of gold? BP added more than $70 billion to the U.S. economy in 2022. Investments like acquiring America's largest biogas producer, Arkea Energy, and starting up new infrastructure in the Gulf of Mexico. It's and, not or. See what doing both means for energy nationwide at bp.com slash investing in America.